Good morning, <clears throat> people of planet Earth. It is 5.41. It's snowing. There's snow on the ground. And it's uh, 27 degrees, it looks like. Or lower, can't really read it from here. some stuff here. Yeah. So we're going to watch the road today. Could be snowy. We got two pairs of pants on. I got the thermals and the sweatpants. We got uh, a sweatshirt, we got four shirts on, shirt, sweatshirt, warm liner, and a outer winter jacket, and I got my uh, safety jacket on today, 23 degrees Fahrenheit, that's below zero Celsius. Minus one, maybe? I don't know. This is the minus grad. But I'm feeling good today. I have a uh, someone sending me some clips. And um, I don't know if I want to play all of them. Because they're not clips, they're just huge segments. One of our sources sent me multiple videos, like eight hours worth of video. And But there are some good clips that I've extracted, at least some interesting parts. And maybe I'll just play those and comment on them. But I don't have my hands free right now, and I don't want to mess around, cause an accident here. So we're going to uh, not do that right now. But I'll just describe it to you. what I've heard so far. So first of all, YouTube is requiring that anyone who covers um, the election say that the, every 15 minutes that the Associated Press have certified, or not have certified, have declared Joe Biden, Joe Biden the president-elect. So, otherwise, they'll take your video down. So, that's interesting. Now, this is not according to the Constitution. But it doesn't matter. Because Google just does what it wants. And it also does the will of the Democratic Party. Because that's the one it gives the most money to. I had these double pants on because damn 
We're gonna be burning some calories today, let me tell you. But that's what we do here on the stream of Random Podcast. We walk in the cold, in the rain. We get our steps in. We're tough. So that's the one clip. And maybe I'll just throw these clips at the very end. <clears throat> then I was listening to uh, Dr. Max Stone uh, rap. And uh, it's, it's alright. And um, I should throw in, some, throw in some links to his stuff at the end as well. Because he promoted my podcast. But, um, I don't want to have a closed mind, and I think it's important that we maintain an open mind, and that we do not come to any conclusions at all. We suspend our wanting to have a simple solution, and to have answers to things. Like Tim Fool does, he doesn't have answers to them. He doesn't come to conclusions. He asks questions. And that's a very good mm, this is good coffee, let me tell you. So that's so right. Now, so the thing with the uh, votes, he goes over the whole voting system and how the voting system was originally designed so that the legislators of the state, so the representatives of the state, would create the rules. And only they have the rules to, uh, and the authority to create the rules for um, running the election or even determining who the electors are. And they don't have to ask the people. The state doesn't have to ask the people necessarily. They can decide on their own. They could choose to ignore the will of the people, supposedly. And we have to understand that a lot of the pain that we feel, that the left feels, in saying it's not democratic, is they're basically very against the whole idea of the republic, which is not a representation direct representation by the people. It's not a direct vote by the people. It's a republic with electors representing and deciding for you. And that is hard to um, accept, but it also means that majorities are not really what matter. And that the system is designed 
to be more stable and less democratic. It's more of a republic. That's what it is. We take the Pledge of Allegiance in America, it says, and to the republic for which it stands, the flag stands, not to the democracy for which it stands. So we just have to understand that. Understand that our system is designed not to be overthrown. And it's designed to become, be, remain stable. Um, to resist uh, a communist takeover, let's say, or a democratic takeover, or a change of any kind. So. And then he goes into a lot of the details about how the whole process works. Interesting is that there are huge amounts of errors that they found, and mail-in ballots are considered to be, in general, um, prone to fraud. And some of these election consider. Um, problems are if all of the ballots and all the rules are applied equally across all counties in the state. Other issues are about this election software itself. But recounts finding more than a hundred vote difference is supposed to be unheard of. But they're finding much larger differences. <clears throat> And they also found, I'm also talking about Tim Pool here, not just what was mentioned in that other podcast, but Tim Pool was saying that they've been audit, auditing and calling people um, absentee ballots and mail-in ballots and asking, you know, did you request the absentee ballot? Did you return it? Was it counted? Etc. And they found large discrepancies where Republicans um, had their didn't have their absentee ballots counted and all types of stuff so <clears throat> what they're saying is is that it's more than a couple hundred that there's anomalies that are quite large and that should be looked into so um, I always like to see a good fight. Now I have also the Best of the Less podcast, which I will include the clip in. And they're basically saying that Trump is Hitler. And that the um, Democrats are the Vichy... The Vichy... Um, uh, French supporting the fascists. And... Uh, the language is just incredible. And, um, I guess Trump gives you an easy, an easy target to hate on. But, um, 
is an easy target to hit on. And um, people really do dislike him, so. That's something that is um, very funny, though, to listen to this clip. But I think what's really the question here is populism versus globalism, right? Nationalism versus globalism. And that's what we're really seeing as a fight here. The city of Mouse versus the country Mouse, but it's also the globalist versus the... Um, and you'll see how every single country in the world is using the same term, Build Back Better, all of the globalists. And they're following a globalist plan, and America's not going along with it. And for that reason, you know, we could say, hey, America is at least resisting, and, um, you know, that's what the picture is being painted. The picture is being painted that this election was rigged by the globalists with, it, I mean, that's the conspiracy theory. That's the picture that's being painted for a takeover of our country. <clears throat> But on the other side, everyone was railing and afraid of, about Barack Obama taking over. And he didn't destroy the country, but he definitely did promote censorship. Snowden is also warning against, I mean, the people that he's picked for his cabinet. This is crazy. You should look at the tweets from Snowden, who's talking about the Obama era picks for cybersecurity or intelligence and how the, their track record is appalling. And, um, I mean, so was some of Trump's picks. Oh, my God. Um, I don't know. It's all very uh, a horror cabinet on both sides, but um, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about, which I really don't want to, and I don't know enough about. But uh, we're going to get back to our computer topics and things we know about. <clears throat> We're not going to make any conclusions here, and obviously, uh, no. I think Trump did some very offensive statements, and he did different things that pissed people off, basically trolling people. But I thought that was pretty funny as well, sometimes. I mean, Obama got us, 
He was such a smooth guy. Um, such a good personality. Careful with what he said. It's like the complete opposite of Trump. But um, he was also pushing for the TPP and other things that were horrible. So it's not just the personality of the person, it's also the policy. You know. And like Tim said, he has actually made some important policies. Like stopping war. He created a peace deal in Kosovo. No one ever did that. I know the Kosovars don't like him because he um, also supports the Serbs and the Russians. But uh, I think it's more than just supporting one country. It's also supporting the idea of a nation. So it's like choose whether you're going to have a nation of Serbia next door or have a globalist or lose all nations to the global uh, tyranny. So, you know, do you have an, someone with an identity or not? That's the question that I have. You know, will they be run from Brussels or run from Switzerland or whatever? thinking about work wow this road is covered in snow very light dusting though um, yeah we're missing our co-host today you guys have checked in Probably busy eating something. We're doing something. Let's check them out. Yeah, still no. Uh, still no update from him. That's okay. We have done quite a few podcasts alone, you and I. My ideal listener. that therapy thing. Well, I'm, uh, working on, um, plant UML. 
and some notations for uh, AWS resources. How to visualize them, working on uh, policies and um, actions. Reviewing our policies and actions. Yeah. So Plant UML is a uh, unified modeling language, and <clears throat> it's not perfect for creating. Networks. Let me see if I can get across this. Oh my god. They really dug this shit out. Okay, there's a path across. Oh my god. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to come through here tomorrow. They're just digging this humongous ditch. So it really gets down to the question of how to um, represent um, AWS CloudTrail logs. events, API calls in the UML, if it's possible, plant UML. Um, I'm thinking about decomposing the um, event names, so if it's like a get object on S3, then, you know, you have like an S3 component with a get method associated with the object. an object having a key in a bucket. So kind of like modeling the API itself, which is quite a, a lot of work. And um, I'm also thinking about reviewing how the policies are used and uh, pruning them down, you know, documenting. I'm, I'm working on documenting all of this right now, important aspects. So yeah, um, 
And I think also part of the documentation should include like how is it actually used, who's using it, why are they using it, how are they using it. Not just the permissions. That should be part of the review process. And then some rationale and some decisions on whether we should keep something or not. When, what are the use cases of it? How it all fits in? So to bring some better understanding to things, some better light. Yeah, and I'm thinking about uh, some tools for converting this plant UML to the hypertext to the wiki. So we should be able to take an existing diagram and find all the boxes and create hyperlinks for them automatically. And then transform the diagram to a hyperlink diagram with places to put in all the text. Definitely should be possible. Probably could make that as a uh, an open tool eventually. Mm. The cloud is the sky is cloudy, but I do see Venus poking through this, the clouds. The wind has stopped because I'm in the valley. Once I get to the big flatland, I don't know what's going to happen. It's probably going to be pretty damn windy. some more. The whole multi-cloud idea. Swipe deploy. I should spend some more time on that. Yeah, the question really becomes, how do we understand all these APIs and all this data? And I guess we really do need to take I think Bodo3 has a good description of, or Amazon publishes a description of their API calls. We need to really create a good machine-readable description of these API calls, what they actually mean, to 
be able to diagram them as well or to visualize them. And then create tools for parsing logs. And the funny thing is, is that the logs, API calls that are logged are actually different from those that are um, displayed. It's quite funny. The ones you use are different than what are logged sometimes. Sometimes there's discrepancies. So, Yeah, and this kind of gets into um, interfaces versus auditing, you know, what something says it's going to do versus what it does. And with the cloud, you really don't have access to what it does exactly. Now, funny is that this local, I think local cloud or something local stack I have to look up the name but basically they've re-implemented portions of AWS to run locally that's kind of interesting and there's people who have different tools for let's say the policies IAM policies and they can evaluate them locally I suppose what we first need is a graph of policies used, permissions actually used. We should study that to begin with, and what policies support them. And you know, the logs don't say what the uh, supporting policy was. You actually have to figure that out. <clears throat> I mean, the GUI has some information about what policy parts are used. I guess that gives you a hint. What permissions are used and what permissions are not used. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done there to make something that's really good. And I suppose what I can do so I can just make tools that will generate views on the wiki that contain all the information. Maybe a graph of what policies are related to what objects and so forth. Um, and then another one with know what users or roles use these things what they're actually doing and maybe weight or color them and show pieces that are not used that we can get rid of 
we could definitely do some reporting in a wiki using graphviz and wiki language and just generate that out. I've also been using Pandoc to convert documents into Markdown. <coughs> so it's all uh, coming together. I finally have a platform that I like. It's just raw HTML. It's like SVG and HTML creating the documents on a static S3 bucket that has limited access to your the IPs that you require to have access to. That's what I'm doing. It's really just IP restrictions. <clears throat> so I also think I can convert the um, the HTML, the wiki into HTML, and just inject that right into the into the S3 bucket as well. So you don't need the wiki at all. I can just render everything myself. Hope it's not too windy. Luckily I got my boots. final stretch of our podcast on the first segment. Yeah. So this kind of gives us a model of some things to look at um, for better understanding. Now we could apply that to other things like languages, like C language. Like what are the inputs on the front end? How do they relate to each other? And uh, what shows up on the back end? <clears throat> and what's the connection, like a documentation? test cases. What test case does what? Okay, these cars are going slow because the ice. planet to be seen in these clouds. She's quite bright. Yeah, so um, now on the compiler level we have the advantage of being able to <clears throat> look at we have test cases and we can look at what test case reaches what 
item. But on the JSON cloud trail, we can also look at what API call reaches what um, outputs. Like, oh, we have all these JSON blobs, but what inputs reach them? And it's really about segmenting test cases. And um, I've been thinking that it would be nice to introduce some kind of trace ID or transaction ID into the cloud trail. So whenever we do something, we a new operation, we create a new session, and inside of that session, we um, embed some kind of trace ID of why we're doing this session, some kind of transaction. <clears throat> or, alternatively, we could just write to a S3 bucket or um, the thing is that the sessions can be mixed. So you have like an IP address, you have a context, but we're not, we're losing the, um, the whole context of the process, like the process ID, the thread ID, the, the purpose, right? Like the actual meaning, and that will be lost. You won't be able to find that again and associate Unless, of course, you tra trace all of that and log it again on the client side. So either client-side logging of all those details and then associating, associating those with the um, cloud trails or augmenting the session. Creating a new session doesn't really cost so much, an assume role. And that will give you a context in which to work. So, even when a web server is making API calls on behalf of a user, could also assume temporary credentials for that user so that, well, one, the permissions of the users are restricted and they can only do what they're allowed to do. That way the web server has less permissions. So it has to authenticate maybe with another factor 
and then switches roles. And I was thinking maybe even include some kind of ticket number from the user saying, okay, hey, So it doesn't have to be in the SSO itself, it could be on the application level. But if the application is the console, the AWS console, then we need to do it on the SSO level. And I was thinking we could <clears throat> when the system is coming up with roles that you can assume also list out open tickets and then those open tickets you could select from and that, that ticket name would be associated with your name in the session and that way you could track everything and you could have different permissions piece of this puzzle might be attribute-based access and tagging users with attributes. user wants to assume a role, the role could check if the user has an attribute associated with them instead of having the user directly um, listed. That would save a lot of typing. And then make those roles protected, those uh, attributes protected, the tags, I guess it's a tag. <clears throat> Need to look into that. Yeah, we'll see. Um, I'd like to uh, try out some of these ideas. And even if you go in, let's just say that you would go in to AWS with one SSO rule. And then you need to get a higher privilege. We could just create a new app that would let you switch and assume other roles based upon permissions. 
and tickets and things. It doesn't have to be in the SSO, it could be actually separate. As long as you have the permission to assume those roles from your SSO role, you would come in, you'd go directly to the ticketing app, you'd pick your ticket out, you say start work. I mean, it could be part of the change management system, why not? Like, why doesn't the change management system uh, allow you to assume roles directly in it to start work and log your results? I mean, wouldn't that be a cool change management tool? This could be a layer that's built on top of the cloud. So we're going to look into that. And then be able to say, well, this is the business case for it. Here's the, here are the different workflows. Here are the different permissions that were needed in the past. You could select one of those, or you could create a new one. And we could uh, do pattern matching. say, well, here's an existing workflow with a trail. We have to remove these constants or these patterns and everything else is variable. So those are the things you can do. We could extract information from examples, from prototypes to create new policies. So I'm just imagining like a whole bunch of overlapping trails and we could also do that automatically. It's like, well, here's a whole bunch of similar patterns. Here's how they differ. Can we automatically abstract that? Can we merge two together? Let's say this or this. And then you have a bunch of ors in the same spot. It's like this or this or this or this or this. We generalize that to like, oh, any identifier or identifiers matching this pattern. So can we generate a pattern based on a bunch of ors and generalize them? Can we find commonalities, factors, common factors in those strings? Can we refactor them? All right, guys, we're almost at the bunker now, almost at the end of segment one. The bridge is iced over, I mean, not iced, but it's got snow, slowly snowing. <clears throat> I'm nice and warm now from all of this pr protective gear.
I think we've got some pretty good ideas here for some product, for some cloud product. This could be fit into some ticketing system. It's like I mean, let's think about it. We want to have like a diagram that shows how everything fits together. Then we want to have different tickets where you select operations, where you describe problems, and those problems get translated to actions. And those actions are either new or related to existing ones. And you try and join them together, but you definitely want to log everything that was done in that ticket collect all the traces and all the logs. And understand them and associate that with a ticket. So a log collection and understanding and merging. Or even just searching. I mean, why not just search the logs when you need them and just be able to find them? And I guess that's where we're going to get into, like Datadog and X-Ray and all those things that are going to Maybe collect extra logs. Instrumentation. All right, people. Well, we have gotten here. End of our segment. Fifty-one minutes. Five thousand steps. Welcome to part two of the uh, solo walkcast. I'm just locking up the bunker. Let me grab my coffee before I have a little coffee crisis on the way. <clears throat> just spent some uh, time sorting different uh, tools, consolidating them and uh, putting them in bins. I've got a whole 20 gallon tote full of tools. It's amazing. <sighs> so, um, time to go back and start my work day. I thought I'd have a little talk with you guys on the way back. So, we haven't really gotten into finding common factors yet. 
but I think it's a mathematical operation. So we're going to talk about that right now. So if we have a sequence of operations, and these could be just actions taken or letters in a string, and we have two strings, and we want to look for <clears throat> similarities, like a diff algorithm. Um, we want to think about that. Now, I haven't read any diff algorithms, but I'm just thinking through this a little bit. I mean, obviously, it's pretty crazy to try and reverse engineer an algorithm while walking down the street. But I'm just thinking naively that we could count individual items and say, okay, this occurs individually so many times. And, you know, pairs and triples, uh, we could count those. And say, oh, different sequences of different lengths are common. And, uh, I mean, how do we identify loops? Right? This is reoccurring. We could say this occurs n times, this sequence. it might also have a different variable every time. I mean, this, this is really getting lost in the audio, but okay. Let's say you do something the same in every loop, and then you have something that's different in every iteration, and the rest of it's the same. So the second step is different. Now, if we just do a naive counting, it'll show the first step as occurring It'll show the second step as being unique, and the rest of the steps will be a block of reoccurring things. But then we want to show that the first step and the last steps have the variable in between. So how does that get done? Like, how do we determine that that's a variable? And I'm not sure. Maybe we need to have a person look at it. <clears throat> Maybe we can come up with some kind of algorithm and say, okay, we allow for a sequence with one variable. Right? Or we create a graph structure. And we say, okay, this constant occurs at like n times. And then the next step branches out to all these different steps. And then it compresses back into n times, so we have two sandwiches of n with uniques in between. Maybe we could recognize that. Well, we're going to have to read up on some algorithms and see what work's been done here. And what do we even call it? Rumpelstiltskin. the Rumpelstiltskin principle. We need to give it a name before we can talk about it and think about it.
so <laughs> so uh yeah maybe these are things that are better not gone over but we're going to just imagine that we're going to have some tools for diffing workflows and complicated flow graphs <clears throat> and finding commonalities and i'm assuming that a generic solution to this is going to be equivalent to solving the Turing problem, right? Because you might just be diffing two Turing machines executing. And you'll never figure them out, I suppose. Like we're gonna have to have some kind of <clears throat> way to compare them. And I guess if we just Anyway, but we could have a person guide it, and we can create a tool to allow a person to to guide this thing and also introduce rules and macros and let them select things and propose things and do it visually by solving a crossword puzzle. That might work. Not have a computer do it, have a person do it. And then we can train a neural network to do it like the person does. Or we can have the computer suggest a cobot, a coroutine, a helper. So, I'm starting to think that I really should learn some more JavaScript. <coughs> Just to complete my programming skills. guys I don't know what I'm going to talk about I think we're going to end this now and I'm going to go back to listening to some podcasts and uh, we don't have to have a super long segment I think I've introduced some good ideas here on the show that we're going to have to come back to some ideas for products got lots of product ideas on this show now we just need an army of people to program them <laughs> We should think about how to become more effective programmers. 
And I guess we really need a foundation for building these things, a framework. do some more uh, plant UML, let me tell you that. And eventually I suppose we can um, do some interpretations of plant UML graphs. I've been uh, actually reading the SVG and extracting data from it. It seems to be good meta language. At least it's easy to parse. So uh, we'll talk about that some more. I mean, ideally, the SVG generated would be fully understandable and could be post-processed to extract all the important relationships out of the graph that was put in. I think we can embed some kind of color tags and stuff like that as well. Attributes. We'll see. It's going to be interesting. Okay, party people. So thanks for listening to this show, and um, I will uh, talk to you in the next episode. Welcome to part two of the uh, solo walkcast. I'm just locking up the bunker. Let me grab my coffee before I have a little coffee crisis on the way. <clears throat> just spent some uh, time sorting different uh, tools, consolidating them, and uh, putting them in bins. I've got a whole 20 gallon tote full of tools. It's amazing. <sighs> so, um, time to go back and start my work day. I thought I'd have a little talk with you guys on the way back. So, we haven't really gotten into finding common factors yet but I think it's a mathematical operation. So we're gonna talk about that right now. So if we have a sequence of operations, and these could be just actions taken or letters in a string, 
and we have two strings and we want to look for <clears throat> similarities like a diff algorithm um, we want to think about that now I haven't read any diff algorithms but I'm just thinking through this a little bit I mean obviously pretty crazy to try and reverse engineer an algorithm while walking down the street. But I'm just thinking naively that we could count individual items and say, okay, this occurs individually so many times. And, you know, pairs and triples, uh, we could count those. and say, oh, different sequences of different lengths are common. And, uh, I mean, how do we identify loops, right? This is reoccurring. We could say this occurs n times, this sequence. it might also have a different variable every time. I mean, this, this is really getting lost in the audio, but okay. Let's say you do something the same in every loop, and then you have something that's different in every iteration, and the rest of it's the same. So the second step is different. Now, if we just do a naive counting, it'll show the first step as occurring It'll show the second step as being unique, and the rest of the steps will be a block of reoccurring things. But then we want to show that the first step and the last steps have the variable in between. So how does that get done? Like, how do we determine that that's a variable? And I'm not sure. Maybe we need to have a person look at it. <clears throat> Maybe we can come up with some kind of algorithm and say, okay, we allow for a sequence with one variable. Right? Or we create a graph structure. And we say, okay, this constant occurs at like n times. And then the next step branches out to all these different steps. And then it compresses back into n times, so we have two sandwiches of n with uniques in between. Maybe we could recognize that. Well, we're going to have to read up on some algorithms and see what work's been done here. And what do we even call it? Rumpelstiltskin. the Rumpelstiltskin principle. We need to give it a name before we can talk about it and think about it. So, 
<laughs> so, uh, yeah, maybe these are things that are better not gone over. But we're going to just imagine that we're going to have some tools for diffing workflows and complicated flow graphs <clears throat> and finding commonalities. And I'm assuming that a generic solution to this is going to be equivalent to solving the Turing problem, right? Because you might just be diffing two Turing machines executing. And you'll never figure them out, I suppose. Like we're going to have to have some kind of <clears throat> way to compare them. And I guess if we just... Anyway, but we could have a person guide it, and we can create a tool to allow a person to to guide this thing and also introduce rules and macros and let them select things and propose things and do it visually by solving a crossword puzzle. That might work. Not have a computer do it, have a person do it. And then we can train a neural network to do it like the person does. Or we can have the computer suggest a cobot, a coroutine, a helper. So, starting to think that I really should learn some more JavaScript. <coughs> Just to complete my programming skills. listening to some podcasts and uh, we don't have to have a super long segment I think I've introduced some good ideas here on the show that we're gonna have to come back to some ideas for products got lots of product ideas on this show now we just need an army of people to program them <laughs> we should think about how to become more effective programmers And I guess we really need a foundation for building these things, a framework.
framework. Well, we're going to do some more uh, plant UML, let me tell you that. And eventually, I suppose we can um, do some interpretations of plant UML graphs. I've been uh, actually reading the SVG and extracting data from it. It seems to be good meta language. At least it's easy to parse. So uh, we'll talk about that some more. I mean, ideally, the SVG generated would be fully understandable and could be post-processed to extract all the important relationships out of the graph that was put in. I think we can embed some kind of color tags and stuff like that as well. Attributes. We'll see. It's going to be interesting. Okay, party people. So thanks for listening to this show, and um, I will uh, talk to you in the next episode. To start off by saying I have been told by YouTube that I am legally required to notify everyone every 15 minutes. The Associated Press has declared that President-elect Joe Biden has won the election. With that, there have been countless studies of the psychology of Donald Trump. They come from journalists, acquaintances, academics, family members. He has been a public figure for over 40 years, and his actions are easy to predict. We know he is sadistic. We know he is without conscience. We know he sees all relationships as transactional and all human beings as disposable. This is well known and understood. What we don't understand is how people sit by and watch and why people who could have stopped him and his crime cult and can slow it down right now have refused to do so. These people are the good Germans of America. And you will find them in big tech, big business, the military-industrial complex, the mainstream media, the intelligence community, the Vichy Democrats who refuse to use the full powers of the House, and in the GOP. Although Republicans have become overtly bad Germans for years, since they are fully on board with Trump's white supremacist crime cult. The phrase good Germans refers to the Germans living in the Third Reich who enabled Hitler and his Nazi regime, yet remained in denial that they were doing so. Or alternatively, they did know, but they put on a show of respectability. They were just following orders, they'll say, or they'll claim they didn't have a choice. Fascism is about the limitation of choices. The way to prevent fascism is early, before you run out of options. Unbelievably, the U.S. is still on the early side of fascism, though it is much farther along than we were even a year ago. That means people with power still have a choice, and they are choosing cowardice, complicity, and cruelty. This is a choice that they are making. 
They made their choice, and we at Gaslit Nation made ours. The other day, someone brought up the famous quote where Trump said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose his supporters. I wrote back, The real question of that quote, though, isn't why do his followers support him? It's who gave him the gun. It's who loads the gun. It's who refuses to arrest him after the murder. It's who creates the propaganda to whitewash the murder. That's why he can shoot anyone on Fifth Avenue. From election day to projections to the Electoral College, how they are certified and how they are awarded, the time frame for that, just to explain to people that the way we're seeing it being presented right now may differ from the constitutional procedure. No doubt. The So the Constitution delegates to the state legislatures the means by which they choose electors who uh, form the Electoral College and who then and who uh, meet uh, on a set date and cast their votes for the presidency of the United States. Uh, and the so the, the state legislatures can choose how those electors are picked within their state. Uh, when the Constitution was first passed, it was anticipated that the Electoral College would actually act as kind of a little r Republican check on pure democracy. And some states, in fact, did not uh, delegate that to their voters. But many voters wanted to be able to have direct election of electors. So for most of our history, most states have had whoever was qualified to vote uh, vote on a set day. And the Constitution does say a set day. Uh, it hasn't always been that way, unfortunately. But uh, And they're supposed to do it on a select day. And that date is usually the first Tuesday uh, in November, uh, historically. Uh, and what happens is the so the state legislature determines here's how we're going to pick our electors, gives it to the in almost all of the states, well, all the states now and in, including some territories, the District of Columbia included. Uh, they allow that the, the people to vote on it, the qualified voters. And based on various Supreme Court decisions over the years, they there are certain limitations on how they can do that. So, for example, they uh, the the uh, a decision came in that said that you can't have a durational requirement for voting for the presidency more than 30 days. So that's why most states have uh, that you can register to vote for the presidency up till 30 days prior to the election. Some states have actually allowed you to vote register on the same day, uh, and there's been different registration requirements depending on the state, but they cannot require it to be more than 30 days. So then people vote. And the vote is counted. Uh, and there's a part of the voting process that's supposed to take place in each state is you have a canvassing of the vote. The canvassing of the vote includes looking at the absentee ballots, making sure in most states the signatures match or whatever, or some have witnessing requirements for counting the ballot. Uh, and then they count the ballot. Some do it by a computer machine. Some do it. Well, I don't know. I don't know if anybody does it manually anymore, at least not initially. And that's the count. So you have the canvas and then the count. And then depending on the, the how close the election is and the individual state's laws, you can have a re-canvas, you can have a recount. The recount can be either by machine or manually by hand. Uh, and you have something that's called a risk limiting audit. And I'll get into more of that a little bit down the road. Actually, so, if, I, if I can stop you there. Yeah. I mean, it, it oversimplified. What's the difference between a canvas and an audit? So the uh, an audit is supposed to basically capture everything. So usually what you're everything that involves the entire voting process. So to take people back, one of the we've had multiple contested presidential elections. Uh, 1824, famously, Andrew Jackson had the election stolen, stolen from him in his view. 
he did win most electoral votes and most popular votes. Uh, but the went to the House, and the House ended up giving it to someone else based on a compromise deal that was reached. Uh, then the next time was 1876. And in 1876, what Congress did is they uh, decided to create a commission to decide the contested electoral votes. Because what happened is in four different states, they sent different sets of electors. So there was a con contest as to who was actually the representative electors of those states. And enough of those states formed a majority. They formed a commission of, uh, of 10 members of Congress and five justices, and ultimately it came down to an 8-7 vote, and they gave it to Hayes. There was a backroom deal cut where the Democrats agreed to uh, allow Hayes to be elected president if the, uh, as long as Hayes agreed that once he was president, he would withdraw federal troops from the South, uh, which in turn uh, took away you know, civil rights protection, frankly, for people in the South for the next 90 years. Uh, then at, not long after that, Congress passed a law to govern how they would handle future election contests concerning presidential electors. And the question has always been whether that law is binding on a newly elected Congress. Even liberal organizations like Lawfare have opined just recently in the last month or so that the, that law is likely not binding on a newly elected Congress because it's the Constitution that delegates certain power to Congress. So, uh, but, the, but that law sets up a provision whereby if there's a dispute as to electors, a member of the House and the member of the Senate have to join in an objection. Each chamber comes back and declares what they deal with that objection. There's serious problems with the law because the law appears to suggest the Senate has a role in determining who the electors are when the Constitution delegated that role explicitly to the House of Representatives. Um, but so the certification process works as follows. The, under the election law that they passed after the Hayes case, after 1876, basically empowers the executive of each state, which is effectively the governor, to make an independent determination as to certification, as to who his state has chosen for the electors to be part of the Electoral College. Is there, is there a party behind you, Robert? <laughs> I, I think there is. Imagine the Constitution dancing to the suit, to the tune behind it. The, uh, so the, the net effect of it is supposed to be uh, that the a, a executive of each state certifies who his state chose as electors. Mo in most states, they rely upon the secretary of state first to certify who the state picked for electors pursuant to the state process. In almost all states, there is a way to, con to, to contest an election. There's some that are specific to presidential elections. There's some that are not. There's some states that have no election contest process. So you really have almost 50 different rules in 50 different states. Uh, and the, in order to deal with that situation, Congress passed a law that said, okay, if you have a contest proceeding in your state, then we're going to safe harbor that to allow you to have that fully adjudicated and determined. And as long as the outcome of that certification contest process is decided uh, at least six days prior to when the Electoral College meets, you have what's called a safe harbor. Your electors will be included within the Electoral College. And so this year, I believe that date is December 8th, because I believe December 14th is the date the Electoral College actually meets. Uh, and the, the Electoral College votes, and then, that, and then the, what happens is that then it goes to Congress. The, the president of the Senate, usually the vice president, effectively, uh, opens up and says, here's who the Electoral College says has a majority of electoral votes or goes through them. That's where a member of the Senate, member of the House can object. 
They can uh, have two hours to have a hearing on it and come back and decide whether they sustain the objection or not. Again, there's a question about whether the Senate is usurping a role that belongs to the House, but that's a question that's never been decided. And actually, if I can stop you there, when you say a contest, a contestation just means that the, the, that just means literally that the candidate does not concede? Does, is it, does it mean that they have to raise specific issues or do they just refuse to concede and therefore uh, make, them, make them go to a vote? It depends on each individual state. So the way the election contest proceeding works is in most states, it, uh, well, I shouldn't say most states, it actually widely varies, but you have somebody you appeal to. You say, I contest the outcome of this election. And this happens usually at a non-presidential level. So you, you'll see these election contest litigation brought you know, for a state house candidate, town council candidate, sometimes a United States senator in the 2008 case in Minnesota between Al Franken and Norm Coleman. And, and in some states, it's a judicial process where you file an election contest. And what the norm is, is you have to show there's enough votes that are in doubt to place the outcome of the election in doubt. So, for example, in Bush v. Gore, there was multiple tracks of litigation, but Al Gore filed a election contest. And in most election contests uh, that are judicial, it has to go to the state, the county where the state capital is. Because technically what happens is the Secretary of State, in that case, certified the election. He filed, usually the certification is the trigger for an election contest. He filed it and he said, here, there's a bunch of votes that are outstanding that have not been counted that are more than the margin of victory. Uh, in other cases, it's, you know, there's some degree of votes that have been cast that are in doubt because maybe they're absentee ballots that were improperly processed. Maybe they're uh, provisional ballots that haven't been correctly counted or maybe there's some other controversy or issue present. And now, in order to affect the outcome or in order to affect the integrity of the outcome, do you have to prove that there's, a, there's enough contestation of votes that would change the result, or that might just show that the that process itself was compromised? It's really, there too, it's a bifurcated process, and it depends also on the state. So in, in most states, you have to show one of two things. You have to either show there's enough votes in doubt that are greater than the margin of victory, uh, you don't often have to show that those votes would have gone for you. It's just votes that uh, show that the margin of victory is in doubt. Uh, or you have to show what's called systemic irregularity. And so much systemic irregularity that it's the, it's the kind of irregularity that you can't prove which way the ballot, that there's a bunch of votes that you could never know one way or the other because it's so systemic. Okay. So, uh, and, and, the, and all the states have had different uh, arguments about how to interpret the law. Election contests are relatively rare, but sufficiently common over time that we have a fair amount of case law over the last 125 years or so in most, in, well, I shouldn't say most, but in enough states that we have some manageable standards that are supposed to be utilized. Uh, but that election contest process is supposed to be resolved prior to the safe harbor date. So what happened, for example, in Bush v. Gore, Gore challenged it, uh, contested it, wanted certain votes counted, in certain counties that had not yet been under his interpretation. Trial court judge wouldn't go along with all of what he was requesting. So it went up to the Court of Appeals. The Florida Court of Appeals said, we don't want anything to deal with this. We're going to kick it up to the Florida Supreme Court. They did. The Florida Supreme Court, as I recall, had six democratically appointed judges, one Republican, if I recall correctly. They ruled, yes, we're going to count these ballots and they have to be counted as part of the certification process. And there has to be an amendment of the certification depending on what happens. That went up to the United States Supreme Court. 
Uh, and that was the famous Bush v. Gore decision. And what the U.S. Supreme Court ruled is that the standards were so standardless, they lacked uniformity, that uh, equal votes were not being treated equally, and that violated the Equal Protection Clause. And because there was no manageable recount that could take place within a sufficient time frame prior to the safe harbor date, they uh, canceled. They said the recount cannot go forward. And that is how that decision was finally adjudicated. Robert, um, I'm going to ask you one thing. Can you put it on mute for one second? Yeah. Well, let me see here. And do you think, is there a place where you can get quieter in your, in your apartment where you're staying? Uh, someone raised a good point that I, we don't want to get and in, in, what is it? Incidentally caught by some claim of, of music in the background. Um, so while Robert does that, we're going to see, hopefully we can, we can find a good. Imagine the constitution dancing to the suit, to the <laughs> tune behind it. The, uh, so the, the net effect of it is supposed to be uh, that the a, a executive of each state certifies who his state chose as electors. Mo in most states, they rely upon the secretary of state first to certify who the state picked for electors pursuant to the state process. In almost all states, there is a way to, con to, to contest an election. There's some that are specific to presidential elections. There's some that are not. There's some states that have no election contest process. So you really have almost 50 different rules in 50 different states. Uh, and the in order to deal with that situation, Congress passed a law that said, okay, if you have a contest proceeding in your state, then we're going to safe harbor that to allow you to have that fully adjudicated and determined. And as long as the outcome of that certification contest process is decided uh, at least six days prior to when the Electoral College meets, you have what's called a safe harbor. Your electors will be included within the Electoral College. And so this year, I believe that date is December 8th, because I believe December 14th is the date the Electoral College actually meets. Uh, and the, the Electoral College votes, and then, that, and then the, what happens is that then it goes to Congress. The, the president of the Senate, usually the vice president, effectively, uh, opens up and says, here's who the Electoral College says has a majority of electoral votes or goes through them. That's where a member of the Senate, member of the House can object. They can uh, have two hours to have a hearing on it and come back and decide whether they sustain the objection or not. Again, there's a question about whether the Senate is usurping a role that belongs to the House, but that's a question that's never been decided. And actually, if I can stop you there, when you say a contest, a contestation just means that the, the that just means literally that the candidate does not concede? Does, is it, does it mean that mm -hmm. they have to raise specific issues or do they just refuse to concede and therefore uh, make, them, make them go to a vote? It depends on each individual state. So the way the election contest proceeding works is in most states, it, uh, well, I shouldn't say most states, it actually widely varies, but you have somebody you appeal to. You say, I contest the outcome of this election. And this happens usually at a non-presidential level. So you, you'll see these election contest litigation brought you know, for a state house candidate, town council candidate, sometimes a United States senator in the 2008 case in Minnesota between Al Franken and Norm Coleman. And, and in some states, it's a judicial process where you file an election contest. And what the norm is, is you have to show there's enough votes that are in doubt to place the outcome of the election in doubt. So, for example, in Bush v. Gore, there was multiple tracks of litigation, but Al Gore filed a election contest. And in most election contests uh, that are judicial, it has to go to the state, the county where the state capital is. Because technically what happens is the Secretary of State, in that case, certified the election. He filed, usually the certification is the trigger for an election contest. 
He filed it and he said, here, there's a bunch of votes that are outstanding that have not been counted that are more than the margin of victory. Uh, in other cases, it's, you know, there's some degree of votes that have been cast that are in doubt because maybe they're absentee ballots that were improperly processed. Maybe they're uh, provisional ballots that haven't been correctly counted, or maybe there's some other controversy or issue present. And you know, in order to affect the outcome or in order to affect the integrity of the outcome, do you have to prove that there's a, there's enough contestation of votes that would change the result or that might just show that the that process itself was compromised? It's really there too. It's a bifurcated process and it depends also on the state. So in, in most states, you have to show one of two things. You have to either show there's enough votes in doubt that are greater than the margin of victory. Uh, you don't often have to show that those votes would have gone for you. It's just votes that uh, show that the margin of victory is in doubt. Uh, or you have to show what's called systemic irregularity. And so much systemic irregularity that it's the, it's the kind of irregularity that you can't prove which way the ballot, that there's a bunch of votes that you could never know one way or the other because it's so systemic. Okay. So, uh, and, and, the, and all the states have had different uh, arguments about how to interpret the law. Election contests are relatively rare, but sufficiently common over time that we have a fair amount of case law over the last 125 years or so in most, in, well, I shouldn't say most, but in enough states that we have some manageable standards that are supposed to be utilized. Uh, but that election contest process is supposed to be resolved prior to the safe harbor date. So what happened, for example, in Bush v. Gore, Gore challenged it, uh, contested it, wanted certain votes counted, in certain counties that had not yet been under his interpretation. Trial court judge wouldn't go along with all of what he was requesting. So it went up to the Court of Appeals. The Florida Court of Appeals said, we don't want anything to deal with this. We're going to kick it up to the Florida Supreme Court. They did. The Florida Supreme Court, as I recall, had six democratically appointed judges, one Republican, if I recall correctly. They ruled, yes, we're going to count these ballots and they have to be counted as part of the certification process. And there has to be an amendment of the certification depending on what happens. That went up to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, and it, that was the famous Bush v. Gore decision. And what the U.S. Supreme Court ruled is that the standards were so standardless, they lacked uniformity, that uh, equal votes were not being treated equally, and that violated the Equal Protection Clause. And because there was no manageable recount that could take place within a sufficient time frame prior to the safe harbor date, they uh, canceled, they said the recount cannot go forward. And that is how that decision was finally adjudicated. Robert, um, I'm going to ask you one thing. Can you put it on mute for one second? Yeah. Uh, let me see here. And you think, is there a place where you can get quieter in your, in your apartment where you're staying? Uh, someone raised a good point that I, we don't want to get, and in, in, what is it, incidentally caught by some claim of, of music in the background. Um, so while Robert does that, we're going to see, hopefully we can, we can find a good, totally paranoid that I just got an email about the music. Okay, I didn't. We're good. I don't think that was enough to trigger any uh, algorithms on YouTube. Oh, right. It has it has been turned down. Okay. So the so we're on the certification process. Uh, let me ask one question. I know a lot of people are asking. Has there been, uh, in recent memory, like, has there been a, a certificate? Has there been a case where the state legislature has not uh, granted the electoral college votes the way the vote of the of the state went? You could argue that took place in 1876 because there were different bodies uh, certifying votes and they were contesting with one another uh, who won the actual state. I think there were four states actually contested 
and that was because of what was being submitted from those states. And so the so, but that's the last time it's happened. 1876 is the last time it occurred, uh, and they passed that Election Reform Act legislation not long thereafter, and it's been the governing law ever since. Uh, now there, like I said, there's questions about whether that can be binding on a future Congress given the constitutional delegation to the House, really, for these kind of determinations. Um, but, you know, that's an open question. Okay. So it, there's now, it, as it stands now, is, it, uh, is there a formal process that, that uh, Trump has to do? Is there something he has to sign in order to formally contest? Or is the absence of concession a formal contestation? No, it, it depends on the jurisdiction. It depends on the state. Some states have no election contest proceedings. Um, so the, I mean, basically you could try to sue maybe under federal law because there are equal protection issues. What happened in Bush v. Gore is that they, at the same, there was parallel track litigation. So while there was litigation contesting the election by Gore under the uh, Florida's election contest laws in Leon County in Tallahassee, the same time the Bush campaign had sued in federal court, alleging that the way this was being conducted violated equal protection principles. That went up to the 11th Circuit. The 11th Circuit decided to hear the case on bunk, where all of the judges issued a, a ruling. Now, they ultimately did not grant the injunctive, injunctive relief, but there were several dissenting judges who laid out why they thought it should. Of note, they laid out the very argument that Scalia would then adapt to get a majority of the U.S. Supreme Court to say no further that it violated equal protection the way this recount was being conducted. So the, uh, there's multiple remedies as a candidate. It depends on the state. Some states, you get an automatic recount. In some states, you can request what's called a risk-limiting audit, uh, and in other, you can request a re-canvas, uh, and that it varies by jurisdiction. Sometimes you can get it automatically. Sometimes people were, may remember Jill Stein paid for them in 2016 because some states require you to pay large sums of money for a recount. Some states did not allow a recount in 2016, like Pennsylvania even though uh, Jill Stein sued in part on issues related to issues that are occurring now uh, about technology. Well, what happens when we have computers counting ballots? Uh, can things go AWOL? Can we have confidence in them? Uh, people on both the left and the right have been raising questions about this since 2000, that you know, the, the, a manual recount is more trustworthy, even with the risk of human error, than is having computers involved uh, when people don't know whether those computers can be manipulated in some manner, when the software or the hardware is designed by people outside of government who may have some conflict uh, of interest of some type. And of course, various you know, hackers and computer technical experts have been showing for two decades now that these uh, methods of counting ballots are insecure. So, the, uh, so that's the issue. But Essentially, as a candidate, so let's say there's an election, they, they report initially whatever their initial count is. One of the first things you can do is you can say, I want to recount. And sometimes the law allows it. Sometimes it doesn't. It has to, be, has to be within a certain margin of error, I would imagine. That's less than less than 1%. All depends on the state. Some states, a real small margin gives you a right to request it. And some states, a real small margin leads to an automatic recount. Uh, it also depends on the state as to whether that's a manual recount or a computer recount. Um, and the so the uh, for example, in Georgia, you're entitled to a automatic recount. It's not clear whether it's manual or technical under the law once it's within a certain margin. Um, now, in almost every state, the secretary of state has the inherent authority to order a recanvassing or recount. And this goes back to a variety of election reforms that were passed 
after the 2000 election. Congress passed a bill in 2002 that created the United States Election Assistance Commission. And its goal was to write sort of best practices guidelines for, you know, how do you do a canvas? How do you do a count? How, uh, what kind of audit? They were, they're the ones who came up with the term risk limiting audits. How do you check to make sure that all the processes worked correctly after an election? Uh, how do you do a recount? How do you do a recanvas? Uh, and, and all of those, and it gave recommended protocols and procedures, laid it out over many years, uh, and they updated that over the years, and really provides excellent guidelines. Uh, in addition, there is a Blue Ribbon Commission formed by the Election Integrity Project out of Minnesota, brought secretaries of state experts together uh, back in 2014 to, and in part they were inspired because of what happened in the Minnesota recount 2008 that ended up being pretty controversial because of how they counted or did not count absentee ballots in particular. And they also established what they wrote a book and a guideline called Best Practices for Recounts and Recanvassing. And so we have excellent guideposts and guidelines out there. And a lot of states pursue it to the United States Election Assistance Commission, creating templated laws, sort of your uh, uh, uniform laws for risk limiting audits have adopted that legislation. Unfortunately, so far, almost no state is implementing the recommended procedures there, which I think is unfortunate because to give people an idea, the goal of an audit is to make sure everything that happened in the election process was correct. So you check the machines, you check the software, you check the, you, you recount the vote, usually manual recount the vote if it's close enough. Uh, you make sure there are observers present who can challenge and contest it, monitors present who have a partisan motivation. You have Democrat and Republican present, for example, or whoever the candidates may be, representatives present, so they can see the whole process. Part of re-canvassing is you bring out all the absentee ballots, the absentee ballot applications, the absentee ballot envelopes, uh, how they match or do not match. And you do a signature match check in front of observers so everybody can feel comfortable and confident in the outcome. That was the point of risk-limiting audits that a lot of state legislatures passed the only state that so far has tried any part of that is Georgia. Um, and even there, unfortunately, it appears they have not implemented most of the uh, recommended protocols and procedures for that. For that. And it's, uh, so we have a pro process in place that is intended, that's been built over the last 20 years in terms of risk limiting audits and recanvassing and recounting. And, and of course, we have a constitution that's been in place for 200 plus years to deal with these issues in general to have the political branches ultimately make a decision. People know when they vote for the House, they're giving them power. Part of the constitutional power they give them is to decide contested issues about a presidential election. Um, and unfortunately, there appears to be a great effort to have neither of those remedies put into place. And I've been trying to argue publicly uh, and in other manners, but, but particularly what I've done publicly is, you know, we can have confidence in this election uh, if we just utilize the protocols and procedures we've come up with over the last 20 years and employ the constitutional remedies our founders created. And everybody can feel good about the outcome or at least as good as they're gonna feel. Uh, unfortunately, there's a extraordinary effort by the media uh, and unfortunately by a lot of secretaries of state to not do that and to rush to a conclusion and to make the associated press uh, replace Congress for who determines the presidency of the United States. And now this, this is just to highlight it. It's not a semantics game where you say president-elect is the formal is the formal term once the electoral college votes are cast in favor of Biden. It's a requirement. So right now it has become custom over the last I don't know however many decades that 
when it becomes clear enough or there's a concession, then I guess the word is colloquially or informally we can refer to the victor as the president-elect until such time as the votes are formally given uh, by the legislature. In the event of a contestation, that doesn't happen. And it's going to be the state legislatures that are going to determine and resolve those contestations such that it's not just potentially premature, but potentially setting an expectation that people might be very disappointed about if, for whatever the reason, um, they do not, they're, they're, it do, the outcome is not what was predetermined or predeclared once they meet on the 14th. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, especially the first part of this process, we've, which we've created all these wonderful guidelines for, is let's make sure the vote is accurate and as transparent in the voting process as possible. So let's make sure we have a re-canvassing. Let's make sure the signature match was properly instituted. Let's make sure any provisional ballots were accurately counted. Let, and then let's make sure the count itself with a manual hand recount with observers present is properly done with so they can make sure that the um, do simple things like part of an audit process is make sure there's not more votes than voters. Uh, that, you know, you match the how many voters voted in the precinct according to who was listed in the rolls compared to the number of votes cast. Um, it, it appears already in, in Georgia that there are some ballot boxes that have uh, fewer ballots than what was reported as being there. So that's part of the process. And, and not only that, these are not only the standards that have been adopted by our recommended uh, officials of both parties, uh, President Jimmy Carter, uh, the former president uh, from Georgia, last Georgian to be president, uh, also recommended these kind of protocols and to be particularly careful with absentee ballots because of the risk they present. Uh, the same was true of Democratic Party and Republican Party uh, litigants over time, but it's also true of our international standards. It's what we, the United States, require before we will certify or recognize an election in a foreign nation. We require these protocols and procedures to be in place. So how is it we're not going to impose on ourselves the same process we demand of foreign governments and foreign countries? Uh, it makes us look bad. It makes the whole process look bad. And, and those who are sort of pushing for a concession, uh, that's not going to satiate the concerns of many people who don't know if the vote is an accurate vote of lawful ballots cast. And well, it's not, not, not that hard to do this. Well, that's the, so that's the question. It's setting aside what might be the media incentive to, to do this. And I've got theories, but theories and opinions are not necessarily what these streams are about. Um, the question I was about to ask in Georgia right now, what's the state of the affairs there? It's a, it's a hand, it's a hand recount. Is that part of a limited audit? Is that part of a canvas or is that part of a formal uh, other procedure? So what the secretary of state publicly stated was that he was going to do all three at once, uh, a, an audit, a recanvas and a recount as part of their risk limiting audit protocols and procedures, which was within his inherent discretion to order prior to his office certifying the election. Unfortunately, it does not appear that is what has in fact occurred. So what is in fact, uh, uh, hold on a second. <laughs> this is what I believe is referred to as boomer moments from based on the comment section. Um, okay, we'll let, we'll let Robert come back in. <laughs> this is going to be one heck of a podcast for anybody listening to it, only the audio and not actually knowing what on earth is going on. But yeah, exactly. I mean, they were talking about thor thoroughbred horses. I have no idea how anything I said triggered thoroughbred horses. The uh, uh, maybe there's some folks listening in who did the, uh, you know, I'll leave, leave that to people's imagination. The uh, so, yeah, I mean, there, there's a protocol and procedure here that it, it, he publicly announced he was going to do. 
which I was very glad to see. And I, and I was hopeful that Georgia would be the example for the rest of the country in these contested states where it's very, very close. You know, let's, let's use these great procedures and protocols that we've produced with experts and bipartisan consensus over 20 years to instill confidence in the outcome, whichever outcome that may be. Uh, I mean, I've been, for people who don't know, I've been part of election litigation almost 20 years and have been pushing for this for often independent third party candidates, but also for whenever it's a contested race. Let's use something that everybody can say, I feel confident in this outcome, even if they don't like who the winner may be declared to be. Uh, and so he initially announced that. He said in his public statements, you can look it up in CBS and elsewhere, he said, I'm going to do all three, a recount, a recanvas, and an audit as part of his risk-limiting audit process. And that's a manual recount of all the ballots uh, in, in Georgia. Now, in Georgia, ballots were cast in two ways, either uh, a handwritten ballot sent in by mail, or if you went and voted in person, it was done by a machine that printed out a ballot and you put the ballot in. And so as part of this, wanted to make sure that, you know, the I, I hope to see that the number of votes match the number of voters, make sure there was no, you know, uh, unusual duplicates or anything like that taking place, that the vote count was correct, the machine didn't uh, overcount something or undercount something. Uh, also wanted to make sure the signature check was actually enforced because all across the country, there has been an, a, his, even though we had a historically unprecedented number of mail-in ballots, five to six times the norm, sometimes even 10 times what has been previously done in a state or county, we're seeing a rejection rate that is historically low, that is 10 to 20 times below the norm. So maybe it's the case that the that all these ballots don't have a single problem with them and that the signature check, uh, signature check would be fine. But the best way to do that is to have an independent observer monitor the signature check, see it, okay, there's the voter registration signature, there's the election signature. My understanding is a lot of these states have digitized these records. So it's not that complicated. I mean, it, it could be time consuming, but not terribly time consuming, um, it, given the nature and the consequence of this election. But it appears that none of the counties are doing that in Georgia. So it, in fact, it appears that's not happening anywhere in the country. It appears that the, the, the singular request that could really resolve a lot of concerns uh, is the very request that they are refusing to grant any county anywhere in the country. And, and just so people appreciate this is that there was, I don't know what, how many times more mail-in ballots this election than in previous elections for obvious reasons. Um, and apparently, yeah, the rejection rate of the mail-in ballots now was something like 10 times lower than in every other previous election where there had been 10 times less mail-in ballots. And the question is why? Now, the question of cross-checking the signatures on the ballot to the signature cards uh, I think there might be some confusion here. I have a bit of confusion. I've been reading that there's a signature on the envelope and a signature on the ballot, but that wouldn't make any sense in terms of cross-checking mm -hmm. because that would be one yeah. and the same element. There's a signature card that all mail-in ballots have to be cross-checked with in theory. Yeah, so what it is is almost all the voter registration files have one of, they usually have multiple signatures on file for you. So for example, they usually have your driver's license signature on file. Uh, you have a lot of motor voter states. Uh, they called it motor voter because when you got your driver's license, you were automatically registered to vote in some states. So they'll usually have your registration, uh, uh, your, your uh, well, they'll have your voter registration. Say, when you registered, if you registered separately, they'll have that signature on file. They'll usually have your driver's license signature on file. Sometimes they'll have other signatures on file, such as when you may have requested an absentee ballot application, you may have signed the application. They may have that signature on file. So they usually have multiple signatures on file and people can look it up. The state of Colorado, the secretary of state's office 
put out a very practical guidance for how you can interpret the signatures, only 20 pages long. Anybody can learn it in about an hour. And most of us have practical experience with this. I mean, the, the signatures matter. Signatures should matter as much in your vote to match as it is if someone was trying to draw money on your bank account that had your signature on a check if it wasn't your signature. So uh, bank tellers do this every single day. Uh, so this is not some kind of like crazy esoteric science. It's a pretty basic thing. And they do it. I have a lot of experience doing it, representing clients who submit petitions to get on the ballot or a referendum to add to the ballot in those states where that's allowed or initiative. And there they, they um, uh, have applied uh, signature requirements basically every election cycle because there's someone that's trying to get on the ballot or there's an initiative or referendum effort afoot in most states in the country. And the election officials are very accustomed to checking signatures. Now, I can tell you that that signature check rate usually results in about a 20% rate of, not of the signature not matching the signature on file. They have always been much more liberal and generous when it comes to absentee ballots, which I always found a little peculiar. It's like, why is it just trying to get on the ballot? Your a signature match has to be strictly enforced. But when it's an actual ballot, somehow the standard should be far less. I, I never understood that. But putting that aside, the norm has been at least 2 to 3% of absentee ballots are rejected for not matching signatures. And as the number of people dramatically increase that do absentee balloting, the concern of fraud and other issues has led to things like in New York and New Jersey, when they increase the number of ballots, uh, absentee ballots, the signature problems increased, not declined. And in fact, there, people can look it up. There's a New York Times article in 2012 which went into great detail about the great risks associated with absentee balloting, especially as it increased, because it was has always been, in the last hundred years, the number one source of election fraud. Uh, and in part, that's because when you go and vote in person, you're, you're, you are in a safe, secure location. You can cast your ballot in secret with no coercion or fraud. And you are usually checked in some manner. In, in Georgia, you have to show your photo identification. In other states, they have other me uh, methods of checking you maybe your date of birth, maybe your address, maybe something else, but you have to do it physically there in person. People observe you doing it. And so the risk that your ballot is coerced or is fraudulent or is purchased or anything else is substantially reduced. So just that risk by itself created risk with absentee balloting. That risk is not even addressed really by the signature match. The signature match just makes sure you're the one who actually filled in that ballot. And the concern is that with lots of ballots flying around and being sent out everywhere, you had a, basically a bunch of blank checks uh, and you don't want people cashing that check who weren't the authorized person. Yeah. <clears throat> and, but it appears that uh, there was a lot of litigation in the summer uh, and in some in 2019 in a bunch of states that was meant to discourage secretaries of state from actually enforcing the signature match, uh, even though the legislatures passed no laws amending that. And there there's something called the electors clause. And that just goes back to the state legislature determines the rules for the presidential election. And it can't be determined outside of court, outside of the legislature by, say, a private agreement between a secretary of state okay, and so some other people. This is the perfect segue. Now, I'm going to remember the minute, 40 minutes. 